The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here, taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the 12th day of June, 2022. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is uh, he's right across the way here. He's at the helm. I'm happy to welcome you aboard tonight and very glad you could be with us. Uh, we have a great show lined up for you as always. We'll welcome in first the former shortstop for the New York Mets. He was a member of the 2000 National League champions, Mike Bordick. In the second half, we'll welcome in former NBA and ABA player and coach, Ray Scott. He's got a new book out titled, the NBA in Black and White, the Memoir of a Trailblazing NBA Player and Coach. So sit yourself back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy the show tonight on GBB. We've got some great people, some great sports talk, and some good memories up ahead tonight. Uh, I'd always like to start off reminding you about social media. We are out on Facebook. It's called WGBB Sports Talk New York. And it's out there. You can stop by, give it a look, then click and give it a like. You can also follow us on LinkedIn. We're out on LinkedIn and, of course, on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. And you can follow me on Twitter at B Donahue, D-O-N-O-H-U-E-W-G-B-B. And if you miss a show... Don't worry, because they're all cataloged out on the website. You can listen to them at your leisure. Now, my first guest, he spent 13 years in the major leagues at shortstop for the Orioles, A's, Mets, and Jays. He was part of the 2000 Mets National League Championship season. After his playing days were over, he moved over to uh, coach some. And then broadcast, it's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight, Mike Bordick. Mike, good evening. Hey, how's it going? Very good, Mike, very good, and it's great to have you aboard tonight. I wanted to ask you first off, Mike, your dad was in the Air Force, and the family moved quite frequently. Uh, you were born in Michigan, and you lived in upstate New York. What town were you up there? In uh, uh, a small town called uh, Fitville, Bill. It was, wow. Uh, let's see, just outside of um, Rome, New York. Yeah, I okay. Guess my, my dad was stationed at Griffiths Air Force Base. Griffiths, so, right, yeah. Yeah, and that was one of my favorite stops. It was probably my age. Uh, went third, fourth, and fifth grade there. But I was uh, an adventurous kid. I started getting into sports, and Fitville, New York was the Perfect setting. I had a beautiful stream. Could go catch some trout. Uh, had sandlot baseball. Whatever that you know, it was nice. Uh, of course, football. Uh, like greatest catches of the NFL, the backyard, things like that. So <laughs> yeah, right. it was a perfect town, and I still long for those kind of days. You know, like I think most of us older older guys. 
Yeah, uh, I mean the Rome area, it's beautiful, Mike. You're right. You're right on the shores of uh, I think it's Oneida Lake, one of the Finger Lakes up there. And uh, there was an amusement park. I can't remember the name of it uh, on the shores of Oneida Lake, but uh, if you can't remember it, I can't either. And no, we, I cannot remember. Yeah, that, that's for sure. We will just move <laughs> right along then, Mike. Now, I want to talk about your major league debut. It was April eleventh, nineteen ninety, with the Oakland Athletics. Do you remember that day? Oh, I sure do. I sure do. You, and well, do you remember that year? It was ni- nineteen ninety. No, <laughs> was uh, the lockout. Ah, oh, all right, yeah. Much the same, same as this year. And when they finally came to an agreement, and it was a short spring training, they decided to expand the rosters, as they did this year. And I was one of two players, uh, Dave Otto, big left-handed pitcher that pitched for the A's and the Cubs for a while. Uh, he and I were the guys that, that made the expanded roster, and, and I got an opportunity to kind of show Tony LaRussa and his coaching staff what I could do out there. I, I, I remember distinctly, though, my um, – one of my minor league coaches named Tommy Reynolds. I had him in single A in Modesto and in double A in Huntsville, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And he ended up climbing the ladder and making it to the big leagues. And he said, Tony LaRusso called him in the office and said, who in the minor leagues can catch the baseball? That was the uh, prerequisite uh, for trust for Tony LaRusso as an extra infielder. And uh, he said, Mike Bordick's your guy. And, uh, I don't know. Evidently, I didn't disappoint because he kept me around for uh, for a little while up there. Yeah, not not too shabby, not too shabby. Now, when you signed with the Orioles, you were signed to take over at shortstop for Cal Ripken Jr., right? Oh, oh man, I just got a pit in my stomach thinking yeah. about that. Yeah, oh man, that, that's got to be pretty ominous, Mike. Well, it was it was uh, it was an interesting time. Um, and I'll try to reflect back a little bit because, of course, if you remember the Oakland A's back in the late 80s, early 90s, they had somewhat of a dynasty going. Um, they went to three World Series. They won one of them. In 1990, I had the opportunity to play in the World Series against the Reds. Uh, we ended up getting beat. Um, we got swept, actually, by the Reds. Yeah. They, they just uh, brought it on with pitching and great offense. And, uh and we had a couple more successful years in 1992. We went back to the postseason. Um, but then new ownership came in. The Haas family uh, sold the team. Uh, Tony LaRusso went to St. Louis. He took Mark McGuire with him. And Oakland kind of just started sputtering along. And, and after coming up with a, a team that had, I don't know, it just kind of just, just played baseball the way you're supposed to play it. Every day, hoping to make it to the postseason. When I became a free agent, I, I was looking for that opportunity again. Did I want to actually have to fill the shoes or try to fill the shoes of one of the greatest shortstops of all time, Hall of Famer Cal Ripken? Mm-hmm. Not really. No. But Pat Gillick, who was the general manager at the time, he, he basically he talked me into it. He saw, he made a great sales pitch, and, and he, he basically said, listen, uh, this is going to happen with or without you. Uh, we have a pretty good team here. In 1996, they went to the playoffs. They, that was that famous, uh, catch over in right field by the fan that basically took the opportunity to go to the World Series away from the Orioles. Then in 97, um, when I got there, we went wire to wire. We were arguably the best team in baseball. We got beat by Cleveland. They ended up going to the World Series and getting beat by the Marlins. But, um, it was, a, I just figured 
listen, the, the Orioles are poised to have a dynasty in the American League East. At least that's the way it felt. They had great players. They had an owner that was willing to spend some money and, and keep guys around. And um, unfortunately um, for the Orioles, after that 97 year, they let Davey Johnson go, our manager. Uh, they let Pat Gillett go, the general manager. And unfortunately, we, we just couldn't rebound. The continuity was lost. And we ended up having 14 years of losing baseball, even though we had, I thought, great players on, on a lot of those Oriole teams. Yeah, uh, I agree with you 100%, Mike. Uh, to lose Davey and to lose a Hall of Famer, Pat Gillick, that's a blow to the franchise. We're, we're speaking with Mike Bordick tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, we'll, we'll look to July 28th, 2000. Uh, the Orioles and the Mets agree to a trade. Pat Gorman, Mike Kincaid, Melvin Mora go to the O's for Mike Bordick. Now, the, the Mets needed a shortstop. The slick fielding, uh, Ray Ordonez, remember Ray, uh, he broke his arm and they bring you in. How did you feel about coming to the Mets? Listen, I, first of all, I, I always said I wanted to experience everything the game had to offer. I'd mm-hmm. never been traded and there was an opportunity and the Orioles were going through a major sell-off. They, they traded B.J. Serhoff got traded, Charles Johnson, Gold Bill Catcher got traded, Will Clark got traded. But when they started working all these trades, everybody was going to a contender with an opportunity to make it to the postseason. And trust me, that's all players want. They, they just want opportunities to, to, to get to the postseason, a chance at, at winning a world championship. And I saw this Mets team, and I'm like, wow, this is going to be fun, man, because they had great players, and they had great young players as well with an awesome pitching staff. I mean, with Hampton and Leiter, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, Roscoe was there. I mean, not Roscoe, but uh, the closer, um, Billy uh, Franco. Oh, Franco. Frank, yeah, Franco. Okay. Yeah, Franco was around. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, they, I mean, they were they were just uh, stacked right up. So I went out. I, I just remember uh, – a couple days before, Mike Hargrove, who was the Orioles manager at the time, he just kept coming up to me and saying, listen, you are not getting traded. We, we, <laughs> we want to keep you as shortstop. You're not getting traded. So it was the 28th, evidently, and uh, my wife and I went out to lunch. We came back, and back then they had uh, answering machines, you know, so my, my answering right. machine had like yeah. 30 messages, 30 messages on it, and uh basically every one of them said, hey, uh, Mike, when you get to the clubhouse, come in and see uh, Hargrove. Um, we got some news. I mean, they didn't tell me I got traded. So I got in there, and uh, Sid Thrift and Mike Hargrove were there. We went up to Sid Thrift's office, um, and we talked to the Mets, and um, the trade was made. And, it, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't upset. I was disappointed that the Orioles, we didn't do what our goal was. And, you know, when you're part of something for a while, you really have it inside that you're going to do something for the city, you know. And uh, I think collectively, um, as the players started getting traded away, there was just a feeling of disappointment that we didn't accomplish uh, the ultimate goal, bringing a championship to Baltimore. But then when I'm on my on the train ride up to uh, New York City, um uh, you know, to start my 
my three month career with the, the New York Mets, man, people on the train started talking to me. I started getting fired up, man. Let's go. <laughs> Mets got a chance to make it to the postseason. And the, like the first day I got in the clubhouse, it was like, it was like, uh, I don't know what very welcoming team. Uh, a couple other players have been traded over, a couple pitchers. Um, uh, Bubba Trammell and, and White came over from Tampa. Rick White, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and we talked and kind of, you know, said this is going to be a great opportunity. Let's try to make the most of it. And, um, it was a fun run, man. It was a, it was a blast. And, uh, some, one of the highlights of, of my career, um, was certainly my first at bat with the Mets. I was able to hit a home run against, ironically, Tony Larusa and the St. Louis Cardinals. Right. So, uh, yeah. It was, yeah. It was that was one of the coolest moments uh, ever. I mean, stuff you kind of dream about. So, I'm glad it happened there, man, because Shea Stadium was one of the coolest places to play in my life, and and I just remember the postseason there. You your eyes would start vibrating because the stadium would shake so hard. I, <laughs> I really enjoyed my time there, and I was, I was hoping, uh, to be honest with you, for an opportunity to come back. I know Ordonia's healed up and had your shortstop, but uh, it was a great run and, and uh, incredible memories with the New York Mets for sure. Yeah, like you mentioned, Mike, uh, the the energy and excitement uh, that you get from the fans especially at Shea Stadium. I mean, Shea Stadium was not uh, the Taj Mahal, but uh, it, it was home. Like the famous saying around here is it's a, it was a dump, but it was our dump, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it was it absolutely. Was, and I totally felt that and totally bought into that. I, yeah. I really did enjoy that experience at Shea Stadium and, and the fans were incredible. How they really rallied behind that team, and and uh, yeah, it was unbelievable memories. And uh, I read a story uh, online, Mike, where you walked in the, into the clubhouse and sitting sitting around with everybody was Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> right? That was the coolest thing. Ever. Yeah. yeah. I, I walk into the clubhouse and oh my god. I look at, I had to do a double take. Are you kidding me? That's Jerry Seinfeld <laughs> sitting on the couch and there's Chris Rock on the other couch and they're just kind of chilling there talking with a couple players. I get to my locker and Chris Rock hollers out. He says, you don't get this stuff in Baltimore, do you, Bordick? Heck no, you don't, man. Yeah. Heck no. No, it was awesome. Yeah. You, there were stars everywhere. Obviously, uh, New York City and. And like both teams and all sports teams, I think in New York, they appreciate winners. And, uh, man, I, yeah, I just felt special there. And, and that Mets team, of course, uh, headed by Mike Piazza was, we were like rock stars wherever we went. It was just incredible the following the New York Mets had and, and especially as they, as they kept on winning. Yeah, they travel well, uh, the fans, to, to get where, wherever the Mets are. Now, did you have to make any adjustments, Mike, coming from the American League to the National League uh, after being traded to the Mets? It was a little different, you know. I think there was – I feel like Interleague had just started, but, you know, going to different stadiums, uh, different surfaces, um, trying to learn different pitchers, yeah, it, it was – there's a transition there, and I'm not saying that's an excuse. I just think that 
you know, sometimes, I mean, I was in the American League, you know, for quite a while, 10 years. Right. And you get used to the nuance of, of stadiums. You get used to playing surfaces. You get familiar with your opponent to where you can anticipate a little bit better. You know, you know the tendencies at times, especially of pitchers. And then, of course, uh, being in the National League, you know, there might have been a few games I hit second, but most generally hit eighth. And when you get the pitcher behind you, you don't know what the heck's coming. You mm-hmm. know, right? So, so it, it was a little bit different. Um, but uh, you know, winning solves a lot of problems, and we kept on winning. So uh, that that was pretty cool to be a part of. Yeah, well, as you say, Mike Mike Bordick with us tonight on the program. It, it was a great run that year. Now, were you on the postseason roster, Mike? For the Mets? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, so who do we have to play? The Giants, the, uh, uh, the Cardinals. Right. And when we were playing the Cardinals, I think Benny Agbayani and maybe Peyton went back to back home runs. And, uh, I came up and, uh, I took a pretty healthy cut. Uh, Mike James, I think, was pitching. Fouled it straight back, and the next pitch was like right at my face, and I went to block it and cracked my thumb, and I tried to play through. It was tough. Um, I ended up. I played in the World Series too, but uh, the thumb was bothering me a little bit. You know, just that when you can't grip the bat, and then it was it was my throwing hand at that. So, yeah, I was in the postseason and enjoyed that uh, for sure. One of the one of the coolest memories, obviously, uh, just playing in the World Series is is incredible in and of itself, but uh, the Subway Series, when we had to travel like to Yankee Stadium, they would shut the highways down. Yeah. It was incredible. <laughs> yeah. Buses would cruise through the city, go to Yankee Stadium, and the fans would be pulled over. There'd be Half the fans would have signs out, let's go Mets. The other half would be flipping us off going down the highway. <laughs> yeah, it right. was awesome. It was incredible. Yeah, that, that was certainly a wild time, and who knows, we may be heading back for that this year, but it's way too early to tell. But uh, yeah. how did you feel, Mike, about the whole Piazza Clemens situation? Yeah, that was uh, pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, uh, Clemens hit and Piazza in the head earlier in the season. And then, you know, when, when the bat broke and went out to, uh, Clemens and then it looked, you know, it looked like he threw it right at him. Right. I don't know. I, I think some of us thought or wished that maybe Piazza would have gone after Clemens. And then, you know, you never know, <laughs> but I don't think Piazza is that type of player anyway to, to go charge. And we just thought it was kind of Bush that, uh, you know, Clemens did that. It seemed uh, almost intentional and obvious that he threw the bat at Piazza, and especially with their history, it just didn't set well um, with anybody, right. with any of us. So, yeah, it was, you know, an, it was an ugly incident, and I guess Mike uh, holds the satisfaction, Mike, that uh, every summer he's invited back to a little town in upstate New York, uh, called Cooperstown, and Clemens uh, may not get there anytime <laughs> soon. So I think that that's, no. that's uh, some degree of satisfaction for, for Mike Piazza. Absolutely. The ultimate revenge right there. Yeah. And uh, how, how was the whole mentality of the, of the club when you came up short in that World Series, Mike? Well, you know, 
that, there was a lot of disappointment. That, that's yeah. for sure. Because uh, the teams that, you know, obviously we had to go through and the fact that what we had to do, you know, from the middle of summer on, um, I thought was really impressive. So, you know, overcoming some adversity and, and then, uh, and some guys really stepped up. I mean, uh, man, oh man, was it Timo Perez, the little center yeah, fielder? Yeah, Timo Perez, right. Came up with big plays and big hits. Benny Agbayani, uh, Peyton, you know, some of the younger guys really came through and, and when you have, uh, you know, championship quality, you know, caliber teams, it's, it's those kind of guys, you know, that really help. You need the, obviously the veterans, you need, you need the great pitching, uh, and that's certainly what we had for sure. It was great pitching. Um, but, but you need some guys that just aren't, you know, unexpecting, uh, to do special things. And, and man, so many of the young players did some amazing things that, that really helped the Mets kind of get over the hump. So but, true. Uh, you know, some of those teams are incredible. The Giants, the, the Cardinals, um, and then obviously uh, the Yankees were, you know, they were still rolling through their dynasty with, you know, Jeter in the heart of it. When, when you think of what Bobby V got out of that ball club, I mean, you're, you're not talking about a bunch of Hall of Famers on the 2000 Mets. You're talking about an outfield with Benny Agbayani, Timo Perez, and Jay Payton. I mean, Bobby squeezed uh, the most out of these guys. No, sure did. And, and um, you know, I think a lot has to be said. Now, obviously, you give young guys a lot of credit, but when you have quality veteran players to kind of lead by example and show the young players the way and i'm not taking anything away from bobby v either but uh because he did you got to have a commander of the ship and he kept everybody pointed in the right direction i think at times kept things kind of lighthearted, but also you know he he's got he's got as competitive an edge as, as i think anybody you know that ever ever coached and and even played. I mean, that's the type of guy he was. So mm-hmm. that rubbed off on him. But, uh, you know, great veterans um, really led the way, as they do with all great teams. And I think, uh, you know, players like Zeal, uh, Gardo Alfonso, Robin Ventura, are you kidding me, and Piazza, yeah. along with, uh, of course, uh, great Al Leiter and Hampton and, and so many of the other incredible arms. So, uh yeah, there was a great group of veteran, quality veteran players to to help kind of lead the way and help kind of guide some of those younger guys. Definitely. Now, you, uh, Mike, were a broadcaster for the Orioles during the time that Buck Showalter was the manager down there. Give us your impressions of Buck, uh, maybe when he managed the Orioles, and, and uh, maybe give uh, the fans uh, a little more insight on what they could look for from Buck Showalter. Well, I think you've already seen that he is uh, incredibly prepared. He right. obviously knows the rules and the game inside and out. Um, and he, and he uh, gives a, a team and a franchise automatic credibility. Listen, the Orioles had 14 straight losing years before Buck took the helm. And then what happens is, and, and why I think even Buck had success with the Yankees, you know, mm-hmm. he goes to the, the veteran players. Now, yeah, he didn't win a world championship, but he set the stage, you know, for Joe Torre and a lot of those championship teams. Right. He goes to the veteran players and he says, listen, these great teams are led by great veterans. When he came to Baltimore, 
guys were, I'm not saying they're going through the motions. We had some really good players, but they didn't do it every day. So he got in Adam Jones's ear. He got in Matt Weider's ear. He got in Nick Markakis's ear. J.J. Hardy came over, and these veterans played the game as hard and as right as you'd want to see. And that's what led to a, a wild card appearance, winning the division in the American League East, right, with the Baltimore Orioles, especially when the Yankees are rolling through, and you right. always got to deal with, you know, Tampa and the Red Sox. So, you know, I think what he did was so impressive um, as far as keeping these guys on the same page, keeping them intense on a daily basis, and really uh, – his knowledge of the game is is as good as anybody. And I'll tell you what, I played with Tony La Russa, and I thought Tony La Russa was the best prepared, and maybe arguably the smartest manager I'd ever seen. And I'm putting Buck Showalter right there. I mean, he will not be outdone as far as preparation. He will never be caught off guard and surprised. As a matter of fact, he goes through scenarios uh, before the first pitch, like, uh, time and time again, I remember him saying stuff like, okay, our starting pitcher goes out there, a line drive after the first pitch comes back, and it hits him right in the elbow, and he can't pitch. Who's coming in? You know, who's, who's following him up? So he is never, uh, it appears, never caught off guard, always prepared for every situation. And what separates most managers, I think, is their control and how they use the bullpen. He's smart in the sense that, He's not going to put guys in harm's way, meaning overuse. Um, he's going to strategically find ways to put guys in where they're going to have success so they can continue to build off that. And he he really does care about, you know, the health and well-being of players. So, yeah, he, he's uh, really, really good. I, I enjoyed watching him manage and, and, you know, talking with him on a daily basis just about, baseball in general and uh, how he did his thing. I mean, you know, he's known for, for building organizations up, and uh, hopefully this is the year that, you know, not only can he build the Mets back up, but take them to the promised land as well. That would be great, Mike. That would be great. High praise for Mike Bordick for Buck Walter. As far as I, w- I was concerned, Mike, uh, there was only one guy that they, they, they needed to hire after the, the malaise of the, the previous years was Buck. And plus, it gives the Mets at all times two Seinfeld stars in the ballpark at one time with him, him and Keith Hernandez, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so there we go. Oh, well, well, Mike, uh, it's been a pleasure having you with us tonight. Yeah. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend some of it with us uh, up here in New York, and uh, we wish you nothing but the best. Hey, thanks, Bill. Thanks for remembering me. I appreciate it. No that. worries, Mike. No worries, and uh, we thank you for taking part in the 2000 season. We always remember the guys that come through here, and I appreciate you making a stop in New York, and uh, we'll talk to you down the line. Sounds good. Thanks, Bill. That's Mike Bordick, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we will speak with the former NBA player and coach, Ray Scott. So stick around, folks.
listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. We are back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB in Merrick, Long Island, New York. I just want to mention that uh, I always hate in fact, I have always hated uh, when the Mets have visited the West Coast. They're, they're out uh, in Anaheim right now playing the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. They're leading 2-1 to one right now in, uh, in the fourth inning. But years ago, uh, the Mets would be on at 11 p.m., I believe it was 11 p.m. I never stayed up to watch it. I never stay up to watch it now. I'm too old. Uh, and back then, we didn't have all the coverage we have now. When I was a kid, a West Coast swing would usually include a stop in Houston on the way out there because there was no team in Colorado. There was no team in Arizona. So they'd stop in Houston, and then they'd head on to San Francisco, L.A., later on San Diego, at least now. Now you can catch up online, or as I do, tune into Quick Pitch in the morning to see uh, highlights from all the previous day's games. You get that. It, it's a great program in the morning on the MLB channel. Uh, today they were on at 7. They'll be back home this week, thankfully, so I'll be able to get back into some kind of routine. And I just want to mention, uh, with the Mets playing the uh, the. Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, one of the longest names in, in sports. Uh, it's funny how Noah Syndergaard got moved back from facing the Mets uh, after spouting his uh, ridiculous mouth off. And uh, I was calling him Cindergirl on social media this week. But uh, that's neither here nor there. We'll, we'll let him go and see if... Uh, he, lear- he learns to eat those words later on, folks. But uh, our next guest, he was a sharpshooter and a strong rebounder for the Detroit Pistons, eventually played in the ABA, and we want to talk to him about that. In October of 1972, he was promoted to the head coach of the Detroit Pistons, and two years later, he was named NBA Coach of the Year, the first African-American to win that award. He has a new book out now titled The NBA in Black and White, The Memoir of a Trailblazing NBA Player and Coach. It's great to welcome to the show tonight, Ray Scott. Ray, good evening. Good evening, William. How are you? Just marvelous, just marvelous. Even better that I'm talking to you now, Ray. (laughs) Thank you. Now, I want to ask you, Ray, you grew up in South Philadelphia. Give us a little bit of an idea about South Philadelphia and who your teams and and your your, uh, superstars that you followed back in the day. Well, I, I come from the days in South Philly. Of, well, I think our biggest superstar was a guy by the name of Tarzan Cooper, and Tarzan played for the New York Renaissance team. Wow, okay. And so okay. that was in the, in the era of segregation. 
So most of the basketball players that we knew as kids growing up either played in the service or in the industrial league. But we didn't know players other than the Harlem Globetrotters to be stars. We didn't think we really played the highly professional game of basketball. So in Philadelphia, our uh, our drive was tempered because we, we didn't grow up as kids thinking we were going to be NBA players when we looked at the NBA and there were no African-American players. Understood. So we, yeah. we were just kids, you know, in the neighborhood that played on our teams, and we the, ex, the excellent players were known by reputation but not by any types of achievements. Uh, but, you know, time moves on. Time passes, and we came out of that 40s, 50s era into the 60s. And the 60s, it was just a sea change in America because the 60s was the time of John Fitzgerald Kennedy and the New Frontiers and the inclusion of the quote-unquote Negroes in America, not the exclusivity, mm-hmm. but the inclusivity. He made that a public announcement and said, that's what we're going to do. Uh, he was not able to bring it about himself, but his successor, uh, after his unfortunate uh, demise, his successor, Lyndon Johnson, made it happen in 64 and 65 with the Civil Rights Act and the... Uh, uh, Voting Rights Act. So those things began to change in the 60s. And the 60s, as you, as you've probably heard, cause you're a young guy, but <laughs> you, as you've probably heard, it, it was a big change. Music changed. The dress changed. Uh, people became more comfortable. Uh, there was integration of schools, uh, of counties, of cities. So it was, uh, a lot going on in the 60s and 70s. And I, say the 70s because the 60s primarily extended. Uh, in basketball, it was changing uh, because we had a, a guy here in Michigan by the name of Cassie Russell. Oh, yeah. And then there was a player by the name of Bill Bradley at Princeton, and they were both picked up by the New York Knicks. So that changed things greatly in the New York era so that when you went to the New York Knicks games in in that era with Willis Reed and Walt Frazier, and then they traded for Dave DeBusher. The Knicks became a a super team. But the the super team of that time that everybody talked about with respect to basketball was the Boston Celtics, who won nine out of 11 championships. Just an amazing run, yeah. Amazing run. But that was during the 60s. You know, and, and, and trust me, going to the, the Boston was no day at the beach. Uh, but they had this great team up there, and we had to go fearfully to Boston to see Cousy and Charmin and Heinsohn and Russell and Sam Jones and K.C. Jones and Havlicek. It was a nightmare. It was a night. You go to, you yeah. go to Boston and you have your monthly nightmare, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's true, but Ray. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now you, you think, play, go ahead, Ray. I'm sorry. No, I'm just going to say, just think of my nightmare. When I, when I started out, I had to go against Dolph Shade, Hall of Fame, Willie Knowles, Tommy Heinsohn, Hall of Fame, Paul Larrison, Hall of Fame. Then I'd come over to the West, 
Bob Pettit, Hall of Fame. Right. Go out to California with the Lakers. Elgin Baylor, Hall of Fame. A Jack Twyman in Cincinnati, Hall of Fame. I mean, the poor kid from South Philly couldn't get a break. No, yeah, you're <laughs> right, Ray. Yeah. Oh, every every place you turn, there was another another star. I I, right. I I understand your plight. Now, now you you were a a big man in your own right, and you were also deadly from the perimeter. So, how, how does a big man? Were you able to bring the big man out and uh, have him cover you on the outside? Could be to defend against your shot. Yeah, in matchups, yes. Against those guys that I mentioned, that's one of the things that I tried to bring to my game. Is that yes, I had to guard them, but I tried to make sure that they had to guard me. Mm-hmm. And they say that's keeping him honest. But you know, I played with a great forward by the name of Bailey Howard. Ah, uh, and he yeah. was he was pre Dave DeBusher. So I played with Bailey. Bailey Hall of Fame. You know, I played with uh, I uh, Detroit and went to Baltimore, straight to Baltimore. Gus Johnson, Hall of Fame. Right. I left, I played there for almost four years, left there, went to the Virginia Squires, and I get to play my last year with Dr. J, Julia Service, Hall of Fame. I've been exposed all of my life to Hall of Fame. I mean, I, 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 I think if I just got tickets from those guys, People could think I was a Hall of Famer because I'd be there all the time. <laughs> yeah, right. That's true. Now, now um, uh, speaking of your days with the Virginia Squires, Bray, I know we want to talk about the ABA because uh, uh, we, we get so few of the guys coming through who actually played in the ABA. Another guy you might have played with who, uh, who's a Hall of Famer, Charlie Scott, right? That's, that is correct. Yeah. That is, uh, yeah, because... They thought at the time that we were in Virginia, in the two years that Charlie was there, is the two years that I was there, they thought that Charlie, you know, was was the creme de la creme. But then this kid comes down from Massachusetts. Yeah. And, and, and his name is Julius, and he's got this huge afro and these huge feet and these huge hands, and he can run like the wind, he can jump over the basket. We go, who is this guy? You know, we knew about him from college, but he certainly wasn't a household name. He just had good games in Madison Square Garden. But when we saw him, we knew he was going to be something special. Yeah, he's a, a local guy, Ray, who played a couple of miles up the block from where where I'm sitting right now in Roosevelt. And uh, as you say, he went to UMass, uh, went on to the Squires, and what I tell kids, Ray, is that the doctor was operating way before Michael Jordan was. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Doctor was in the. You know, there's a pantheon of great forwards, and and, that, and that's how you how I ask people to look at it instead of doing greatest of all time. Look at the players, and the the, the absolute greatest player that everyone knew about in the NBA that played in that same style was was Elgin Baylor. Mm-hmm. And Elgin Baylor averaged 36 points and 20 rebounds and, you know, was dunking the ball before even talk, people even talked about it. But Elgin Baylor, but there was a guy from the neighborhood up there that you know about by the name of Connie Hawkins. Oh, yeah, another guy, yeah. 
yeah, he's another guy. And then it went from Connie to uh, Michael Jordan. And, you know, now there's, there hasn't, they're not a pantheon of those players. They come in threes and fours. You know, it's like the Russells, the Jabars, the Wilts, the, the Thurmans. You've never seen anything like that again. You saw those four guys, and, and they were one hand in the glove, but you've never seen that type of talent in a quartet of people again in the NBA. And that's, that's including the next group with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Hakeem Olajuwon and Moses Malone. They're great players, but they don't equal Russell, Wilt, Thurman, you know, that's, that's a, and, and, uh, Russell, that's a hard quartet to friend with. Right. Uh, thing with the forwards. That's a simple, you talk about Julius, and, 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 and I saw Julius when he played at, uh, uh, UMass, uh, because they played in the garden, so you saw the games on TV in the garden. Right. But you didn't, you, you didn't think, oh my gosh, is this guy gonna be like the most unbelievable player you've ever seen. And then we come later on as the, as the, as the world is still changing in the 60s and 70s. In the late 70s, you get magic and you get the bird. Mm-hmm. And that just, that put us on front street. When <laughs> magic and bird came into professional basketball, that put us on television every night. And I know even as a little kid, you know that those games were TV delayed. Uh, at that time. Sure. And so after that period, Magic and Bird come in, you got upfront television to every basketball game being played up until now. Up until now. Right. I mean, what Steph Curry is doing for for professional basketball is just phenomenal. But he's taking it to another level. But remember, Bird and Magic are the ones who put it there. Right. They're the reason that these guys are on TV every night, as as you say, Amen. Ray. Because when I was watching the Knickerbockers back uh, playing Will Chamberlain, Jerry West, Elgin Baylor, and the Lakers for the championship mm-hmm. back in 69-70, I had to mm-hmm. listen to my transistor radio in my bedroom to get the home games and then stay up till 11 o'clock to watch the games out at the Forum because uh, right. they were blocked out. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yep, you got it. You you nailed it. Mm-hmm. That was that was our life in professional basketball. But it certainly has changed for the better. They've brought more people to the table, uh, uh Billy. They now they now have fifteen African American coaches out of thirty two. Pretty that's, good. That's amazing. Yeah, that is great. You know what I mean? Because that's where I, I come from when we weren't even welcome. We weren't welcome at the table. Well, the NBA brought us to the table. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that's what I want baseball and I want the NFL to learn. You bring people to the table. You know, you, 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 you do things for the equity of our nation and show our nation that there's equity and equality. And, and, and that's where people learn a lot of lessons. I believe that. We are speaking to the great Ray Scott tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, what did the ABA do uh, to forward the cause of the NBA, Ray? Well, g- give us that story. 
Oh, that's that's a, that's a great question. That is a. I hope you ask that question of all your NBA people because the ABA contributed so much. What they did, in my opinion, is they broke down the middle of the country, the Memphis, the Denver's, the San Antonio, mm-hmm. the uh, uh, Dallas. You know that middle of the country that kind of uh, said. We like basketball, too. And if you stop and think about it, you know, basketball was primarily a northeastern sport with a couple of teams on the West Coast. You know, it was Boston, Philadelphia, New York, Syracuse, Baltimore, down to Atlanta, down to Miami. But now the NBA is across the country. The NBA plays a much more interesting game. A lot of people hate the new game. But the NBA now plays a much more interesting type of ball game for everyone. And I, it's a game that I couldn't coach and I couldn't play uh, because I wasn't a dunker. I was a skill player. I was a jump shooter. But the game today is you have to be exquisitely talented to be a shooter from three points from 25 feet away from the basket, which, by the way, we were taught coming up, as were as was you, that is the worst shot in basketball. <laughs> yeah. If you took a 25-foot uh, shot in basketball back in the 60s and 70s when you were coming up, you'd never get back in the game. The coach would be the screaming coach. at you. <laughs> <laughs> and he wouldn't be screaming at you on the floor. He'd be screaming at you right next to him because you'd be sitting next to the coach. <laughs> yeah, <no>. That's right, <laughs> Ray, yeah. That, that, that's the way it was then. But the game, they said, look, We want to open the game up, and what can we do? We're going to do what the ABA did. The ABA opened this game up, and it's an enjoyable game. And we weren't drawing monster crowds in the ABA, but we had a great theory on the way that we wanted to play the game. Athletic guys that could run and dunk and shoot long shots. And, you know, the the two of the best guards I've ever seen were Dal Carrier and Lou Dampierre mm-hmm. in, in Kentucky. They were great outside, long-range shooters. And that, so what happened in the NBA, everybody in the NBA, we want to get some of those. We want some of those guys. <laughs> and all of a sudden it became a way. And in 1979, the NBA said, we're going to install the three-point shot. We're going to install cheerleaders. We're going to install a band. We're going to install uh, color television to see uh, everything. The only thing, and this is the, this is a holdout. It's a holdout by the NBA, and you and I both know it. Right? They will not adopt the red, white, and blue basketball. Nope. Yeah. Everything else they've adopted. Boy, that would be something, Ray, to see see that beach ball going through the air again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and and really, they made it into a very good basketball. Yeah, they made it. At, well, yeah, when I got there in '70, that basketball it was lights out. It was, it was good. You could it you it up, and it looked pretty, and it it just brought it brought color to the game. Right, and to see a guy like the A Train artist Gilmore grab that with one hand and hold <laughs> holding it out there, right? Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah. You remember that? Oh yeah, that that made him. That made the A A train going to the ABA. 
right. put them at another. It said, hey, we can go out and get big men. And we, we talk about, folks, at, yeah, we talk about yeah. the great artist Gilmore. Is that, that's who we're talking about right now. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. And he was, he's great. He's a Hall of Famer. Another one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a, just a great person. Great person. Good I, man. I had the opportunity to coach him and, uh, he was playing against Ralph Sampson. We had a game in 1985, all-star game, Ralph Sampson's first professional game. And uh, Moses Malone didn't show up, but Artis Gilmore did. We had 10,000 people there, and the place was rocking. Yeah. place was rocking. I mean, it, 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 the game just got, it just like I was saying earlier, it grew by leaps and bounds. And I think it's made a real, my book is about what an impact the game has made in our country and how, what the impact is we'd like to see happen in our country because of that game. Right, right. And I want to, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to mention to the folks, again, the book is titled The NBA in Black and White, the memoir of a trailblazing NBA player and coach. Now, Ray has written a book. Uh, it reflects not only on his own career, but it reflects on the history of black prominent figures uh, in professional basketball and how that platform has impacted societal change. Right, Ray? Absolutely. Is that, is that Absolutely. That, that says it so well. I mean, I, I learned my lessons from the great Earl Lloyd. Mm-hmm. You know, Earl Lloyd was a, for the fans out there, Earl Lloyd was an HBCU player. He was from an African-American school, black school, West Virginia State. Mm-hmm. And he was picked on the fifth or sixth round in the NBA in 1950, 1950, he was picked, yeah. and he just he Sweetwater Clifton was his contract was bought out by the Knicks, right? Uh, yes, from the Harlem Globetrotters, and Chuck Cooper was drafted by Red Auerbach with the Boston Celtics. Those three guys, they made a permeation into the NBA that none will ever forget, because people went to a game. And they saw African-American players on the floor for the first time. And two of them, you didn't even hardly know of them. Earl Lloyd from, uh, from the, uh, 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 West Virginia State and, and, uh, Sweetwater Clifton from the Globetrotters. Unless you were a Globetrotter fan, and many, 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 many people were, that's where he came from. But that, that historical move of bringing those guys in, that was 50, by the 60s, the time that my time was coming around, Lenny Wilkins was playing, had come from Providence to play with the St. Louis Hawks, which, which again was literally going to play in the South. And Oscar Robertson mm-hmm. was going to the Cincinnati Royals. That down south, right on the borderline of, of Kentucky. University of Cincinnati and the Cincinnati Royals, right there. Now the Royals previously had been in Rochester, again, a northeastern city. There you and go, then, right? Uh, right? Yes. So then my first year, I come in, and there's a guy there by the name of Walt Bellamy from Indiana. Oh, boy. And he's taken by the new team, the Chicago, and it wasn't the Bulls then, it was the Chicago Packers and the Chicago Zephyrs. And they ultimately became the Baltimore Bullets. Now they're the Chicago Bulls again. 
Another Hall of Famer you mentioned, I'm, Ray. There you go. Well, bells. I'm telling you. Yeah. Yeah, bells, sweet bells, yes. Yes. Now so you, 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 you know those guys. See, you're a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And, and I always say, New York, you, you, you cheat because you know everything before it even happens. <laughs> Good Lord. I mean, you guys get, you guys get the word on a player or, or, uh, a trade or something. You go like, yeah, you know, so and so's being traded tomorrow. And I'm like, how do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that, yeah, that, 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 the, you know, that was the fun of, of I, I went to school my freshman year in Brooklyn at the City Tech and uh, on 300 Pearl Street. And I, I just learned the culture of New York. I could find my way from Brooklyn all the way up to the Bronx, to, to, to uh, 210 Street and Gun Hill Road. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, I, I knew my way, I learned my way around New York because that I challenged myself. You know, the only, I, I, I never made that left turn and went to Queens. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I, I said I'd never figure out how to get out of Queens. So right. it's a whole <laughs> neighborhood. Well, it's a borough, but it's a neighborhood unto itself. Sure. Yeah. So, but basketball in New York with the, I used to take the train up to St. John's to go see St. John's, play against Providence, to play against Wilkins. And Johnny Egan and Tony Jackson and Kevin Lockley and Leroy Ellis. That's the new St. John's. The old St. John's was Gus Alfieri and Alan Spider. Oh, Gus Alfieri. I went to his basketball <laughs> camp, Ray, out of St. Anthony's in Smithtown. Yeah, Coach yeah. Alfieri. Yeah. 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 Great man. Great man. Yeah. And so, you know, those, I mean, that's how I learned about New York. And learned a lot more about basketball. I learned a lot about basketball coming up uh, to the Apple and uh, going up to Harlem and playing in the Harlem playgrounds. I played in I played at Rucker before it was Rucker. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, and that, the, the gentleman who started Rucker was uh, was a maintenance worker, but he got the guys together. You know, gave them basketball so they could go out and play. And, and I went uptown with Cal Ramsey and Sat Sanders. Cal Ramsey, and, uh, yeah. It was great. Great living uptown. But it, it, I just learned so much. It's a, it's a basketball town, Ray. That's what it is. Uh, Ray, I, I want to thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us here in New York. I want to tell the folks once more the new book, NBA in Black and White, the memoir of a trailblazing NBA player and coach. I'd like to thank Lissa for setting setting us up together. Ray, she she does a great job. Uh, great. Lissa Warren, great. yeah, a, gr- a great lady. And uh, I thank you for being with us. We had it. We had a lot of fun, and we bandied about yes. some great names. Ray. Yes. Thank you for having me with you, my friend. Have a good evening. All the best to you and your family. And please be well. Thank you. You too, Ray. That's that's Ray Scott, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Mike Bordick and Ray Scott, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you folks for joining us. I'll see you next week for our Father's Day show. we got David Mantle and Billy Martin, Jr. 
I think if you'll want to tune into that show, I think we're going to have a good time. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.